0: It is very nice to be in a church where people are generous. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I said, there's a little booklet entitled The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It'd be good for you to have a copy and to read it. And lo and behold, somebody left these 16 copies on my Bible this morning. I don't think they're all for me. (laughs) And so if you'd like a copy, please. They'll be, I'll leave them up here after the service. Second thing is, um, we didn't get, by my mistake, we didn't quite get to read all the scripture that I wanted to read this morning. So would you open your Bible again to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 19. I wanted to read verses 41, 42, and 43 as well as those others that we read. And so we're going to read those right now. And I think you'll see that it completes the, the section. So what happens is, verse forty, uh, the king, all the people of Judah, half the people of Israel, they brought the king on its way, and then on his way, and then we read in verse forty-one, then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, "We have our brothers, the men. Why have the Our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him. All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense or has he given us any gift? The men of Israel answered the men of Judah, we have 10 shares in the king. And in David also, we have more than you. Why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Well, let's uh, pray together before we look at God's word. Lord, we thank you that we can come to you that you've given us this reliable record. We ask you to help us now. We confess that we need you to guide us. We need you to open your word to us so we understand it. So we thank you that we're not alone. We have your spirit to work in us. So we pray that you'd open our hearts and our minds and help us to be responsive to you. Thank you that you invite us to come to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Bob and his team were the first to land at the Tokyo airport. They were there to set up General MacArthur's headquarters and to work with the Japanese government to effect Their surrender. He thought when they landed that it would be like what happens after a high school basketball game. That uh, their team and the Japanese team would meet there on the airport tarmac, they would shake hands, and they would then go about their business. It was quite different. As he tells the story, he got off the plane and noted, first of all, that all around the airport, maybe uh, uh, 10 yards separated from one another, were Japanese soldiers standing with their backs to the runway, their heads down. And he said that that was the case not only all around the airport, but on the way from the airport into Tokyo to the building where they were going to set up their offices. Japanese soldiers, backs to the road, spaced evenly all the way down. And so with his mistaken notion, he and the rest get off the plane. They go up to Japanese officials on the other side. He's about to extend his hand and they take off their belts with their pistol, samurai sword, bow their heads and hand them to the victorious leaders on the other side. It was a time when there was going to be a need for national rebuilding, and it is very difficult, as you can see just in that one interaction. That's what's before us this morning in these verses. David's need to rebuild a war-torn nation. And these verses not only uh, show us the difficulty that faced him, but the difficulty that faces us as people who want to be those that contribute to the unifying work of Christ around the world. So we're going to look at those verses we just read, 2 Samuel chapter 19, the end of verse eight, down through verse 43, not verse 40 as I messed up. Uh, We're gonna go down through all of those verses And we're going to look at them this way. David's attempts to go it alone. And then God's progress to help him to see that he needed to work with people and have people work with him. And then we're going to end up with, um, well, your part in the week that's ahead in Christ's movement to build a kingdom for himself. David doesn't have a very good track record as we get to this part of the Bible. Um, And unfortunately, it continues all the way to the end of those verses we just read. The nation has been fragmented because Absalom has mounted and an attempt to take over David's place as king. And so there are Israelite people in the north, people of Judah in the south, and they did not, after the battle was over and Absalom was killed, they did not go to center court and shake hands and say, let's go on from here, brothers. And that's made quite clear in the verses that we just read. Please notice, it's a long section um, there are 16 rhetorical questions. Seven of them come from David. And what those questions do is they keep the pace of the narrative going, rapid fire. Uh, but you know how it is with questions. When somebody asks a question, you can't not answer it, at least in your head. You have some response to a question. And that was, that's what goes on here. Now, just in terms of the difficulty that David faces if you look at the opening verses, 9 through 15, they are balanced by those last verses I just read, tension. In verses 9 through 15, there's tension between Israel and Judah. In the last section, uh, verses 40 to 43, there's tension between Judah and Israel. But then David meets three people along the way. It's similar to his Um, leaving Jerusalem to get away from Absalom. He meets people along the way as he's leaving. Now he's meeting people as he goes back. First of all, we'll see an encounter with Shimei, and then after Shimei, um, Mephibosheth, and then after Mephibosheth, then Barzillai. So what's all this tell us? Well, let's just go back to David's bad record. Uh, Remember, Joab had said to David, David, you can't be disengaged now. This is no time for you to be consumed by your grief, difficult as Absalom's death may be for you. This is not the time you have to put it aside. Because if you don't, people will leave you. So come down out of the upper room, go down to the city gate and speak kindly to the people that are there. The best David could do, as we noted last week, was come down and sit at the city gate. No mention of a peep that he has to say. He waits for people to come to him. So... What's the next step? Well, verses 11 to 15, now he gives some instructions to Zadok and Abiathar who have stayed back in Jerusalem. Remember, they're the priests. He told them to stay back there and to do some intelligence work for him. Now he sends them a message. He says, you are bone of my bone. You're flesh of my flesh. Um, How long is it going to take for you to welcome me back as king? Now, let's just think about that for a minute. If people are at odds with one another, where do you start to work together? By emphasizing the differences? Not at all. By underscoring the similarities. This is what we have in common. And so where does David start? With Zadok and Abiathar, and he says, Say to the elders of Judah... Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and flesh. Why should you be the last? David is not showing a lot of wisdom here. And we might just pause and say to ourselves, notice the contrast between him and what we find about the Lord Jesus Jesus says you belong to me you're part of my family I've made you one we're on the same team we're on the same page we're going in the same direction but not so with David back here and he does worse than that Do you notice the next thing he says? By the way, Zadok and Abiathar, as you're going along, not only speak to the leaders of Judah, but also speak to Amasa. And then he makes an oath. He says, God do so to me and more so if I don't make you commander of my army in the place of Joab. Now, we don't know what has happened. What we do know is that Joab was a very skilled military leader who honored the king. Perhaps David had learned, we don't know, the Bible doesn't say, perhaps David had learned that Joab had a major role in Absalom's death. But the notion that David would now say to a military leader on the other side, now I want you to come and be my leader. That seems almost incredible. Where is his head? What message would that send to the troops that had been loyal to him? Joab, you're out. We got a new guy. He's better, bigger. Oh, yeah, by the way, he's on the other team. But the one thing that I really want to underscore here in this early interaction is David making a distinction along bloodlines. If you remember um, back with Absalom, he thought that being king was the most important thing and his blood relationship to his father, that was not significant. And what does David do now? He places the emphasis on the blood relationship as if the kingship is not all that important. It's very strange. Well, the first person he comes to then is uh, Shimei. Now, what do we know about him? He's one of those with whom David had interaction as he's leaving Jerusalem. And uh, if you remember, Shimei was on the side of Saul. He was mad that David would have taken Saul's place. He thought that the kingship should have passed on to one of Saul's descendants. And he demonstrates his ill will toward the king by cursing him and by throwing stones and kicking dirt at him. Well, now we're told that Shimei has heard that David is in charge he brings a thousand other Benjamites with him. They rush toward him along with Zeba. And imagine that you were David, and you saw those that, that large an assembly of people coming at you. If I were David, I'd be a little nervous. Well, Abishai, who said earlier when Shimei was mistreating David as he left Jerusalem. Abishai back then said, David, you want me to take his head off? I can do it right now. Well, he steps to the plate again and he says, shouldn't we we bring the death penalty upon him? And there is something to what Abishai has to say. If you go back to the book of Exodus, in um, chapter 22, verse 28, you will see that one of God's laws was this. If you speak evil about people that are in charge, people that are in authority, you deserve to die. It would have been a just thing for Shimei to be put to death. But David's response is, Abishai, keep it to yourself. We're not doing that today. Don't I know that I'm king? And it appears as if This is just an expeditious kind of uh, move on David's part, not principled. It appears as if there's this mass of humanity in front of him, and he's not quite sure what to do. And so he says, well, we're not going to think about justice at this point. Next, Mephibosheth. Now, we need to remind ourselves a little bit about the background there. We see Mephibosheth in chapter 9 and then reference to him again in chapter uh, 16. So let's just review that. Chapter 9, David is reflecting on the fact that Jonathan was his best friend and he is gone now. And he is, David has taken Saul's place as king and he says, isn't there anybody to whom I could show compassion from the house of Saul? And someone says, well, yeah, there's Mephibosheth. You know him. Uh, he's a cripple. His nurse dropped him when he was a little boy. And he isn't able to walk. David says, all right, let's do that. Tell him I want him to eat at my table from now on. He's going to be one of the king's special guests. This is the way that I can show kindness. And he does. And furthermore, David says, well, now, who's in charge of the property, the resources left by Jonathan to Mephibosheth. And they say, well, there's Zeba. And so David says to Zeba, I want you to manage all of these properties for the good of Mephibosheth. It's an, an example of extreme kindness, mercy. And of course, you see in that, don't you, something of the Lord's goodness to us by comparison. What are we? Like cripples before the king. No status. And so, Jesus in his goodness comes to us and he extends himself at precisely the point of our need so that we sit at his table. And we're able to be cared for through his generosity. Well, Fast forward now to chapter 16. What happens? David is on his way out of Jerusalem. He's running from Absalom. And at the beginning of chapter 16, we read that Ziba, the caretaker who's responsible for Mephibosheth, Ziba comes to David with uh, animals laden with supplies to help David on the way. And in the process, he says, oh, Uh, David, by the way, you know, Mephibosheth, he didn't really want to come. He's one of the descendants of Saul, and he has said, um, from now on, maybe the the kingdom will revert back to me. David keeps that in his mind. And he says at that point to Ziba, okay, from now on, You are the one who has all the resources that would belong to Mephibosheth. You take them, do whatever you want with them. Uh, You can aggrandize yourself with those resources. That's the background. So as David now interacts with Mephibosheth, we want to see two things. We want to see, first of all, a picture and then a picture that's interpreted for us. What's the picture? As Mephibosheth comes to meet the king, he looks a wreck. He hasn't shaved his beard. He hasn't taken care of his feet. And he hasn't changed his clothes since David left. We don't know how long that was, but, you know, he not only looked bad, he probably smelled bad. And David's question to Mephibosheth right out of the chute is there in verse 29. Why didn't you decide to come with me? And the inference, I think, is, Mephibosheth, you are disloyal. In other words, David is saying, you know, I believe what Ziba told me. And so now Mephibosheth has a chance not only to interpret his looks, but also his actions. And what does he say? He says, well, I haven't trimmed my beard. I haven't taken care of my feet. I haven't changed my clothes because I've been waiting for the king's return. In other words, not taking care of himself in those ways was a sign of mourning. He wasn't happy at all. He's sad that the king has left. And then he even addresses David as the angel of God. What's David's response to all of this? Please notice. Verse 29, he says, Don't talk to me about this anymore. I've decided you and Ziba will divide your property. Now, that also was not quite the case. Remember, he'd already given it to Ziba back in chapter 16. And so David is being a little capricious here or impulsive or embarrassed. We don't know exactly what. But he's certainly not being conciliatory in the face of a man who has come and said, Oh, I am so glad that you're back, David. This is not exactly the way to win friends and influence people, you see. But there's some progress in the narrative. We start with Shimei, who's an out-and-out enemy. And it certainly appears in a closer reading of his interaction, that Shimei really is saying, I'm sorry uh, because he's afraid, not because he's truly repentant. Now when we come to Mephibosheth, we find another person from the house of Saul, but there's significant movement from Shimei to him in terms of reaction to David. He says, oh, I'm so glad you're back, David. David. But David can't quite get it. And that brings us now to the next section versus well, no, we won't do that yet. Uh, that, that brings us now to the end of the narrative. I, I want to hang on to Barzillai just for a moment. Um, that brings us to the end of the narrative, because I'm, what I'm trying to do is underscore David's failures here. Uh, the end of the narrative, what do we find? Men of Israel and the men of Judah, all the people of Judah and half the people of Israel, they bring the king on his way. And then the men of Israel and the men of Judah get into a little spat about things. And uh, we're told at the end that there was fierce interaction between them. See it there at the end of verse 43? Who's going to be first in welcoming the king? Do we get to be the big deal, or do somebody else be the big deal? We want to be the big deal. That's the thrust of it. And there's fierce competition between the people of Israel and the people of Judah. And so I ask you this question. Wait a minute. Let me just point out one other thing. Uh, verse, verse 41. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? In other words, there's a fight that takes place between the people of Israel and the people of Judah, and David is, where is David? He's right there. Can you see it? He's right in the middle of it. And what's his wise response? What's David say? Not one word. No response. Not unlike what we see with David back at the beginning of the chapter when he could have helped the people by speaking kindly to them. And let's just notice as well one of the contrasts between the way in which David handles this conflict and an opportunity to be a peacemaker. Notice the difference between the way he operates and the way Jesus operates. What does he do when you and I can't get along with each other? He's present with us by his word and his spirit to lead us to repentance. Isn't that the way Jesus operates? Because he's taking the people of God and molding them into a more and more fit place in which the Holy Spirit dwells. David is once again the nowhere man. Now, I hope that you have heard me say this morning a number of contrasting points between David and Jesus. Back at the beginning, doesn't take Joab's advice to speak kindly. Abiathar and Zadok, he's trying to unite uh, his faction along the lines of blood. Mephibosheth, and now here at the end, doesn't say a word when the people for whom he's responsible are each at each other's throats, fiercely at each other's throats. Hold on to that for a moment. Now we can go back to Barzillai, right? Look at verses 31 to 39. Who is he? Well, we don't know very much about him. He's a Gileadite. He's on the other side of the Jordan. And at the time that David was fleeing, he, in his, out of his generosity, apparently he was rich, out of his generosity, he takes the initiative to give to David out of his resources. He's a generous guy. He is a self-effacing guy. And he is loyal. And David says to him, Barzillai, wouldn't you come with me? Come back to Jerusalem with me. I'll provide for you. Maybe he wanted Barzillai to be part of his council. Who knows? We don't know what the reason is. But David here's Barzillai's response. He says, look, I'm 80. I... I I can't think clearly, you know, I can't hear well, I can't see well, I'm bungling around. Um, you go, I just want to go back home, and I've come down to the Jordan to see you. I don't want to have to go up to Jerusalem. That would be laborious for me. Um, you go your way. But take my son. And uh, David says, okay, I will. I'll take Ham," and he does. And David then kisses him and blesses him. Isn't that the way that we establish unity in a frayed society? We bless people. We care for them. Isn't that the way a kingdom that's fragmented is rebuilt? Yeah. So there's seemingly some progress in David. But now what we really want to do is ask ourselves this other question. Where is your place in this story? Okay, that's where we, we want to get to that. Where is your place in the story? We've seen ways that David and Jesus are uh, contrasted here. And we can say, all right, I have a better understanding of that. But is... The end game for Christians just to have more mental clarity about who Jesus is, is that the idea? I don't think so. I think certainly we want to look at Christ. Paul says that to us in Second Corinthians. He says, as we behold him, we're changed into his image. But being changed in the, into the image of God is not simply a cognitive thing. It's affective, right? We want to learn to love what Jesus loves and hate what Jesus hates. We want to be more deeply devoted to him. So there's that side of it. And then in addition to our cognitive self and our uh, affective self, there's also the behavioral self. And so we're told again and again, be holy as I am holy. The fruit of the Spirit, you know? We're to evidence that kind of behavior. Because the ultimate goal is for us to be conformed to the image of Christ. So where's your place here? It seems as if there's kind of a composite pointing ahead for the people of God here. Uh, this narrative makes us think about the growing kingdom of God in the New Testament. And all the people of God are called to be like Mephibosheth, aren't they? In this sense. Waiting with anticipation for the return of Christ. And Devoted to him as because of his mercy to them and aren't all the people of God also called to be like Barzillai in the sense that he was generous and loyal and self-effacing now by self-effacing you say what do you mean by that I mean calling attention to yourself is a bad thing when you're self-effacing, you're calling attention to someone else. The Lord calls us not to be proud, but to be humble, to call attention away from ourselves and to him. I think that's where this passage points us, to be like Mephibosheth and to be like Barzelli, to the extent that they were like the Lord Jesus for the sake of his kingdom. Can you think of anybody that has been like that in church history? I can. You probably know him too. The dean of earth moving. You know about the dean of earth moving? Okay, let me tell you. R.J. Letourneau was an uneducated, relatively uneducated man to whom the Lord had given great gifts at building earth-moving equipment. He built graders, pans, large construction vehicles. Uh, I don't know, David, help me. Backhoes, big, big stuff. Yeah. The reason I asked David is because he graduated from Laterno University. If you want more about the life of Letourneau or the university, talk to David. But Letourneau was a man who loved the Lord Jesus and wanted to use his unique skills at creating earth-moving equipment for the glory of God. For 30 years, he traveled thousands of miles a week so that he could help to influence Christian organizations. Just to have some sense of how influential a guy he was in the earth-moving world, uh, he provided the equipment for the, Hoover, the construction of the Hoover Dam. He provided equipment for the construction of the Alkine Highway that runs up through Canada, up to Anchorage, Alaska. This is a significant guy, but he didn't want to hang out with the big wigs of the business world. He would much rather have been in his office working with the engineers designing the next iteration of earth moving equipment. Matter of fact, he said, I'm anticipating that in the future, uh, earth moving equipment that now handles tons of earth, uh, powered by uh, machinery that generates hundreds of horsepower will be moving hundreds of tons of dirt powered by machinery that generates thousands of horsepower. And he said, when that comes about, I want to be the firstest and the mostest. Well, he died at age 80, having worked just about all his adult life. He didn't retire. And you know what else he did? He took the asset, or the the resources, that his businesses and his personal life generated. He took all those resources, and he chose to live on, he he chose to give 90% to the Lord and live on 10%. What a reversal. Especially for some of us who have a hard time living on 90% and giving the Lord 10%. But not RG. And I think he's an apt example of what Peter happens to say to the church when he thinks about the kingdom of Christ and the coming kingdom of our Lord. Listen to this. This is from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and following. He says, Or is it Hey, wait a minute. No, that's not right. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. Wrong book. Second uh, Peter chapter three, verses eight and following. He says, "The day of the Lord is coming. All that we see is going up in smoke. You're not going to be able to take it with you. And so how are you to live in light of the return of Christ? Who is fishing his building, kingdom building project? How do you live? Well, this is what he says The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and its works will be done, and all that's in it will be done away. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. What kind of people want you to be? Live holy and godly lives as you look forward to and hasten, make it come faster, the day of the Lord. That's the vision that's before us. Make the coming of the day of the Lord faster, as RG did. He gave himself. In other words, let me say it another way. The force of the passage is, this is the time, my friend, to get the spiritual lead out. This is the time. Don't wait till tomorrow. This is the time to organize your finances and the use of your resources, uh, other resources, physical, mental, whatever, to maximize your contribution for the sake of the Lord. I don't know how to say it more directly or more clearly, The Lord's kingdom is advancing today. You get to be a part of it. And in the advance of that kingdom, you get to reorder your life so that you can make the greatest contribution to the glory of God. Is that a goal worth living for or not? And if you want more information on how you might make that practical, talk to David. He'll tell you about Laterno. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you'd bless it to us and help us to be people who um, really do hasten the day of the Lord. Help us to know how to best invest ourselves that you might be glorified in all things. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.